thank you so much for joining us again for our third podcast this year. I am thrilled with today's guest agreeing to share his wealth of knowledge in the topic of financial well-being. I have delivered sessions with Matthew on a number of occasions and always come away learning something new. Financial well-being is one of the core four that make up, in my opinion, a well-rounded well-being offering. And this is why I wanted this podcast to be a part of our well-being calendar of events. So let me introduce today's speaker, Matthew Mitten. Matthew is a partner at Second Sight and he has over 20 years experience working in financial services. Matt is passionate about how we communicate in the workplace using all the tools available to deliver multi-channel communications to engage with as wide an audience as possible. His expertise in the employee benefits and pensions area is extensive and Matthew is at the forefront of Second Sight's financial wellbeing initiative linking the broader concepts of money and mental health with financial matters and traditional pension and benefits programmes. Matthew has been involved in new pension scheme launches, financial education programmes, wellbeing initiatives and flexible benefit design. He regularly presents at leading HR events and sharing panels alongside pension ministers and other industry experts. So without further ado, I will pass you over. Thank you, Beth. Uh, delighted to be here. Thanks very much for having me uh, in to do this short podcast. Yeah, financial wellbeing. I mean, it's a subject that is uh, forever growing in the minds of uh, businesses and people. And uh, I'm hoping that I can share some information and some thoughts and maybe some practical tips today just so that um, people can understand a bit better and maybe take some small steps to, to improve their own financial well-being. There's a lot of stats around, so I'm, I'm just going to start with a few. I mean, financial well-being, in my view, is really closely linked to people's mental health. Mental health is, has been growing in, in terms of its prevalence in the workplace and just generally out, out there in, in the media, whether that's because of the royals or other people supporting it, but it's definitely becoming more pre- prevalent. And I think financial well-being is something that's really closely linked to people's mental health. And the CIPD did some research, and according to their research, it was the number one uh, reason that people got stressed. You know, things, I mean, phrases like, we will have money worries, you know, it's very much in our terminology already. Some other research by uh, a a business called Neighbour said that 58% of people were worried about money uh, when they were asked about it, but were worried about money in the last 12 months. Uh, PwC did some research, and they were talking about one in three people being distracted by personal finances at work. And nearly half of us, you know, 46% spend more than three hours a week at work dealing with personal finances. So you know, on the worry side, you know, that's, that's disturbing statistics to hear about all that sort of thing. And if you're worried about stuff, you know, you're not going to bring your best self to work. You know, if you're coming to work and you're worried about your finances, if it's what you wake up and think about, <clears throat> it's going to impact your relationships, it's going to impact your ability to be creative and all those sorts of things. So hence the reason I think it's starting to get looked at much more seriously within the workplace. Um, and so what I'm going to cover off today really is I'm going to talk about simple, simple things like the three buckets of financial planning. So we're about short term, medium term and long term. I'm going to talk about boomerangs, kippers and sandwiches. And then I'm going to give you some ideas how you can get pay rises for the short, medium and long term. So I just want to try and define to begin with what I would say you know, financial well-being is in just a phrase. So I think it's about being and feeling financially in control today and for the future. So a couple of key things there, you know, being and feeling in control. So that's that's a key word there, being in control of your finances, not feeling like they're getting away with this. So in the States, they've done a lot more um, research on this, and, and we borrowed some of their research. And so they've got a definition for financial well-being, and they put it into four sort of different pillars. The first one, uh, very simply, is to be living within your financial means, to be living within your means. And that just means budgeting and understanding what comes in and what goes out. 
And for a lot of people, they've never been taught budgeting. It's just something that's been expected that they would know, particularly if you're in professional services or some other business where it's expected that you would just understand how to do that. So living within your financial means is the first one. The second one is uh, having a manageable level of financial stress. That's the second pillar of financial well-being. Quite difficult to define that. Um, You know, different people react to stress differently. Um, you know, one very simple benchmark is if you wake up at night and you're worried about your money, it's the first thing you think about. You know, that is not a manageable level of financial stress. You know, the things that we that um, that we sometimes we need a little bit of stress just to sort of get us to be motivated to do something. But if it's a long-term issue, then that would be obviously very very bad. Uh, the third pillar is uh, about having solid financial foundations. Um, and that's separated into three different categories. One is having an emergency fund, having cash on hand in case you need to dip into it to repay your car or your household items. Um, and typically that's you know should be three to six months worth of your net pay saved up in an account somewhere. Uh, the second aspect of fo- solid financial foundations is having uh, no interest, uh, sorry, no high interest short-term debt. So that's no high interest short-term debt or very little. Um, And then the third one is about having sufficient financial protection in place. So if something happens to you, you and your loved ones are well looked after, and that gives you that feeling uh, of security, that feeling of control, um, and understanding where your assets would go, so around estate planning. Um, The fourth one, um, probably my favourite one actually, is the future-focused objectives. So what I mean by that is having a plan, understanding what your goals are for the short, medium and long term, understanding how to look at them, to see them, because when you've got a goal and you can see what the objective is, if you have some short-term speed bumps, some, you know, some things that throw you off track, you've got something to go back to, to anchor to, to see you through you know, th- that short-term turbulence. So having a plan can really help you to get that sense of feeling of control. So I'm now going to talk about the three buckets of financial planning. Um, and the first one, short-term. So short-term financial planning, short-term financial well-being tends to look at the less, you know, less than two years, stuff that will impact you in a shorter shorter term. So one of the first things to really understand is where do you spend your money? So a question I often ask when I'm presenting to people is, you know, um, if you had a cup of coffee from a high street chain like Starbucks five days a week, how much do you think that might cost every year? Um, and you ask people the question, you know, it's a surprisingly high number. I mean, it's £676 a year. Now, <clears throat> I had a £60 a month coffee habit and uh, I decided that I would try to restrict my coffee intake uh, and as a result of that, I thought I needed to practice what I preach. So at the end of last year, I, I decided not to take any more uh, takeaway coffee. And I've used that money to save up. And now, you know, I've got a nice little savings pot to one side. So little things like that help you to understand where your money goes. Do you really need it? If budgeting and, and you are finding you don't have enough money left in every month, then budgeting has got to be for you. So know where your money goes. Look at your mobile phone, your food and drink, your pets, your transport, membership for gyms, subscriptions, etc., etc. Find out where they, all, where, where your money goes and analyse it. Um, and then take some action. And again, I thought I should do this as someone who, who um, is talking about this stuff. So I did mine. I printed off the, the spreadsheet from my bank account, went through it all, took some stuff away. And then I gave it to someone else who probably have a much keener eye, i.e. my wife, uh, who had a much closer look at it and was able to find bigger savings than I had made initially. So yeah, give it to someone else to have a look at as well and see if you can't find additional savings. Doing that, I was able to save 5% of my outgoings. That's the equivalent of a 5% pay rise. So well worth having a look at doing some stuff like that. 
the Money Advice Service, uh, which is a free website, they will provide you with a budget planning tool if you want to go and have a look. It's quite detailed, um, but for those people that like that detail, that's a very, very good place to get some free assistance. There's other apps out there as well that can help analyze your spending. So Chip is an app that uh, looks at what you spend each month and then will save some money uh, into a separate account for you using an algorithm to work out how much you can afford to save. Um, other banks as well, Monzo, Revolut, they've all got kind of budgeting and saving technology in there. And you know, again, it's just something that helps us get into better habits. And one of the things I'll talk about a bit later is you know, what we're not very good at as a nation is saving. We're very good at spending. We've got out of these good habits of learning to save. And my parents and my grandparents' generation would never have dreamed of going on holiday unless they save for it first. But we're pretty good at uh, you know, putting stuff on credit cards. And I think that's part of the problem and why financial vulnerability is on the rise. Now, just sort of quickly on debt. I mean, debt is a big problem for this country. Um, the average uh, sort of household secured debt is consi- consistently rising year on year. Um, you know, let's be honest, the, the, the people that market that are pretty good at it. And, um, you know, it's a lot easier to spend money than it is to save money. But just a quick example, people often um, will have money on a credit card at a relatively high interest rate, and they might have savings on a relatively low interest rate. You know, it's much better off to pay off your credit card or your other loan, which is on the higher interest rate, okay? That is a full sense of economy of keeping savings on a low interest rate. Um, and the other thing that I think is important is to understand your credit rating. I mean, in the States, I've been told, everyone knows their social security number and their credit score. When I ask the audience this question, who knows their credit score, you know, you tend to get one or two people stick their hand up. It's really important to understand what your credit score is, what it relates to, and how to, Im- and how to improve it, so that when you do borrow for things like mortgages, or you do apply for things like you know, rental agreements, etc., you've got a good credit score. Again, you can go to Experian, or another one is called Noddle. They both provide free credit score numbers, so you can get access to those, um, and it will give you tips on how to, uh, how to improve your, your credit worthiness. So that's kind of the short term. I'm going to move on to the medium term now. And uh, the medium term, we tend to look at a sort of between two and nine years. Um, and then the long term is sort of 10 years, 10 years plus. So I'm going to move on to the medium term now, which tends to be two to nine years in terms of thinking and, and financial sort of well-being, financial planning terms. I think I mentioned earlier that you know, we have a problem saving in this country. And I, I read a statistic recently, um, I think it was by the Financial Conduct Authority, that 40% of people in the UK have less than £500 in savings. So that rainy day money that I was telling you about earlier to put aside um, you know, for the short term, you know, most people, or nearly uh, 40% of people, have less than £500 in savings. That's a real worry, because what happens is if something is, you do need a short-term uh, injection of cash, what you tend to do then is have to borrow money. The cost of living obviously very high, and um, people leaving university and education with quite high degrees of debt has meant that debt's fairly normalised now in society. And it makes it hard uh, with a high cost of living for people to leave home. So that has led to um, the evolution of the boomerang kids. So the first of my boomerangs, kippers and sandwiches. So boomerang kids is a phrase that's come about when, you know, going back to my parents or grandparents' generation, you know, people would leave home at 18 or 21, get a job, and that was it, settle down. Nowadays, they go to school, go to college, maybe go to university, but quite often they'll come back again. And sometimes they even bring a kid with them as well. So... Um, the boomerang kids nowadays, the average age when a child leaves home is 27. And as someone who's got a 15-year-old daughter, I didn't read that statistic with a great deal of relish, I can tell you. On the subject of leaving home, uh, a lot of people want to get on the property ladder, okay? And, I, and we can completely understand why that is. 
the challenge these days, of course, is getting the deposit together. That's the first challenge. Um, statistics I read recently are that the average deposit for a first-time buyer in the UK, um, this is a first-time buyer in the UK, is £52,000, which is a staggering amount of money. And for London, it's even more than that, it's 92000 So clearly a lot of people um, are going to struggle to save up that sort of money um, because uh, it, it would take a very long time to do so. The result is that uh, we've now got the ninth largest UK mortgage lender in the UK is the Bank of Mum and Dad. So the Bank of Mum and Dad will take their money either probably from their pension scheme if they're over 55, which has dangers associated with it, which um, I can't go into today, but that's a separate thing. Uh, or they might take out a second mortgage. Um, as a result of that, nearly half the people that are buying houses today expect to get help from Bank of Mum and Dad. Um, potentially, you know, Bank of Grandmum and Dad um, is another option. You know, we're finding that money being passed down the generations more and more. A lot of people uh, we read sometimes like to do this mortgage uh, work themselves, but there's danger to that. And there's a statistics recently that said eight hours is the average time people spent researching their mortgage. You know, people spend longer researching a holiday than they do researching buying a house. So you know, do be careful when you're looking at that sort of thing. Just Googling it is not necessarily going to be the cheapest deal. Um, in fact, only one in four people identified the cheapest deal, despite half of them think, saying it was easy to do. Um, so this led us on to sort of coining a slightly different phrase, which was you know, bank of mum and dad lending to their children from their pensions and their mortgages would lead us to kippers. And KIPPER stands for Kids and Parents' Pockets Eroding Retirement Savings. And um, you know, so that sort of medium-term challenge for uh, the, the parents is to how to fund their children so they can leave home you know, while still protecting their, their longer-term savings for their pensions and uh, their retirement. I think the most obvious place to look for a medium-term savings plan is going to be an ISA. You know, um, there are a number out there. There's the the lifetime ISA, there's a help to buy ISA for property, but the, the most common one is just sort of your stocks and shares ISA. There's a £20,000 allowance per person, um, and you can access that money whenever you like, unlike a pension where you, you can't get access to the money until you're over 55. With an ISA, you can. Whilst the money goes in after you've paid your tax on it, it does grow tax-free, and you can take it out tax-free. Um, so yeah, very flexible, very good. Um, and you know, whilst 90% of people, I think, put their money into cash ISAs, you know, if you're looking for a more longer-term investment, then you know it's worthwhile considering the uh, stocks and shares ISAs out there, which will give you a better return uh, over the longer term, most likely, than, than just leaving it in cash, which at the moment, as we know, has a very low interest rate. So I'm now going to move on from medium-term stuff and, and look a bit more at the longer term. So when we think about long-term we are often thinking about our retirement plans um, as the primary kind of long-term savings aspect. The thing is, how we think about our retirement has changed massively in the last few years. I've referred to my parents and grandparents before, you know, I think in their day, you know, they only had to worry about one thing and that was maintaining their job because they had a final salary scheme. A final salary scheme gave you a pension depending on how long you worked for, um, and so they didn't really have to worry about it. It was all taken care of by the trustees and by the company. They don't really exist anymore uh, in the private sector, and we all have you know, what's called defined contribution schemes or group personal pensions. And probably over our working life, we'll collect more than one of those. So there's a collection of defined contribution schemes. You might have some ISAs that you've built up as well, maybe some other cash savings. Hopefully you have a property. So you might think about home equity releases for some of your retirement plans, or maybe downsizing. Um, the state pension, of course, can play a vital part in someone's financial plans. 
And then, you know, people don't stop working anymore at a set date. You know, people can often phase their retirement. So how does that factor into your, someone's thinking when it comes to their longer term planning? And then the biggest change of all was in 2015 when flexible retirement came in and you could withdraw your money however you liked. as one lump sum as cash, you know, as an annuity, which is how you've done it before, or almost like a, a bank account drip feeding the money out. So all of those things make it very challenging to find the headspace in our busy world to go, okay, I'm going to sit down and work all of this stuff out. It is complicated, and I think that puts a lot of people off. Um, you know, typically, we have other things in our lives to worry about. You know, life's journey can often distract us, and some of that's good stuff. You know, it could be marriage, it could be kids, and sometimes it's stuff that uh, happens upon us, which might be health issues or emergency, or, or maybe it's debt that's stopping us from, from thinking about this kind of thing. Um, the reality is, though, it is something that people need to sit down and take some time out to understand how it will impact their, their future. And you know, the danger is you leave it till you're too late to uh, look at these things, and then in which time the, the, uh, it will be more difficult to, to put in place the things you need to do. I refer to my point very early on about having the, the feeling of control over both today and for the future. And I think if you've got that plan in place, then you know, having a plan and understanding what it means to you does give you that sense of control. And I think for, for longer term planning, it's, it's absolutely crucial to look at a plan and see where you're going. Otherwise, most of us have this general fear of the unknown. And if we're looking down the, the future, we don't know what that looks like. That can create a, a real sense of unease, which I don't think is good for our financial well-being or our mental health, to be honest. And more often than not, when you do start looking at these things, there are then practical things you can do to take action to improve them. Other longer term things to think about uh, as a sign from just sort of retirement plans uh, is how and where our money goes. You know, how would we make sure that, that our assets, our property and things that we've saved up over our life go to our loved ones? So um, simple things like having a will, you know, still two thirds of people in the UK die without one, which is uh, really poor planning. They're not very expensive. Uh, it's possible to get a simple will. And that just means that your money goes to uh, who you want it to. There are other ways you can save uh, money. So we're trying to avoid inheritance tax here, which um, if you're a state, i.e. all of your worldly goods are worth more than 325,000, then you could have an, uh, some inheritance tax to pay. So again, a specialist there, you'd probably need to get some advice about that. Um, but it's something that we are encouraging people to look at. There are simple solutions to this problem. And we run a number of tutorials around this. And quite often we have younger people on these tutorials. Um, not because they've got an estate they're worried about passing on, but because they want to understand how to talk to their parents or grandparents about it, because obviously it's an emotive subject uh, and one wants to be sensitive about it. So, you know, again, things to think about there that this is an educational piece really for, for people across all ages rather than just those that are thinking about their own estates. But I do think we are talking about a generation here, these what often referred to as the baby boomers, the lucky ones who've got final salary schemes, all the the property values and, and all of the, the share privatization benefits, etc. But also, you know, you could call them the sandwich generation. So this is the last of my kippers, boomerangs and sandwiches. Is the sandwich generation, you know, they've got children that they can't leave home because they can't afford to, to, to leave home. They've got potentially elderly parents that need to go into long-term care, which is something we haven't touched on today, but is another subject which is very expensive. They might be having to think about how they pass their wealth to their children, maybe even their grandchildren. Um, and that can create a huge amount of stress. Um, again, because these are sort of a bit older, these people, there might be an expectation they should know where to go and, and how to deal with these issues. And uh, uh, the reality is 
there isn't always clear signposting because people are afraid that financial advice is expensive or they don't know where to go. Um, so yeah, you've left with the sandwich generation who've got a different set of issues potentially uh, to the millennials or, or, or generation X and Y. But you know, I think financial well-being is something that impacts people of every age bracket and every salary bracket. So you can have good and bad financial health um, in the same way you can have good and bad mental health. And mental health doesn't discriminate between people's earnings or their ages, and I think financial well-being is exactly the same. So the final thing I'm going to finish with is, um, it was Winston Churchill who said this, it's a quote really about insurance, and it just says, if I had my way, I would write the word insure over every door of every cottage and upon the blotting pad of every public man, because I'm convinced that for sacrifices that are conceivably small, Families can be secured against catastrophes which would otherwise smash them forever. So, yeah, I guess that says it all, really, that sometimes we don't think beyond the insurance that we might get at work, uh, which often is a great basis for our financial foundations, but just want to sometimes make sure that it's enough for you and your family so that you sleep well at night and that it gives you that feeling of control over both your short-term, your medium-term and your long-term. So just to kind of recap, hopefully what I've covered off today, some practical stuff with short, medium and long term. Um, you know, young people are gonna be staying at home a lot longer, so let's try and get them into better habits of regular savings, not regular credit cards. You know, retirement is a journey, it's a plan that needs to be thought about uh, as far in advance as you can. And if you can get the sense of control, then maybe we can get closer to that feeling of financial freedom. I think that's the ultimate goal for us all at some point, is to feel financially free. But I think by getting and taking some steps to get that control to begin with, you'll get a sense of financial freedom as a part of that process. So thanks very much to Beth for having me in. And thank you to Unum for inviting me to come and and share my thoughts. Um, Hopefully this has been helpful for those of you that have been listening. Thank you so much, Matt. As always, that was incredibly insightful and lots of food for thought. Things on my to-do list already, get a will, look at where I can make savings, And I am also so relieved I only had the one child. Bank of mum and dad is a real thing. Our next podcast will be released later in the year. Thank you so much for listening.